0: Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I am so excited to welcome my next guest. He is the longtime political reporter at the Cincinnati Inquirer, and he is currently the senior political analyst at 91.7 WVXU and WVXU.org. He is also a volunteer at Walnut Hills High School. The Chatterbox, the school newspaper, the school newspaper that produced me. So I'm a little bit biased, but um, I'd like to welcome in Mr. Howard Wilkinson. Howard, how are you doing?
1: Very good. Thanks, Clayton. Thanks for having me.
0: So I just want to you know, start right off the bat with the beginning of Howard. Um, what made you want to become a journalist? Oh,
1: my. Um, well, you know, I really have to go back to literally my childhood. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. And um, ever since I could read, basically, I was like fascinated by newspapers and news. And as I got a little older, I started, uh, there was a place in downtown Dayton called Wilkie's. It was a bookstore slash newsstand. And when I was a kid, I used to actually like take the bus downtown with whatever money I had from shoveling snow or cutting grass or doing whatever and i'd go into wilkie's and i would buy a big stack of out-of-town newspapers and then i would haul them well i usually i'd haul them over to a white tower restaurant and sit and have a big butter burger and start reading these newspapers um, and i you know i was hooked by them there were always newspapers in our home uh in those days there were there was a uh, Dayton Daily, uh, Dayton Journal-Herald in the morning and Dayton Daily News in the afternoon. And, on, you know, occasionally on the weekends, my dad would, would end up getting other newspapers. Uh, he, he liked the New York Daily News. Uh, we, he would get that downtown. But uh, I was just fascinated by it. And I decided very early on mm-hmm. um well, in high school, when I was uh, getting involved in, in a school newspaper and I became the editor of, of the newspaper at Belmont High School. And that pretty much solidified it. I took, in my junior year of high school, there was a program where you could go down to Ohio University, uh, you know, and their journalism school for a week And between your junior and senior year of high school, if you were going to be like an editor of a high school newspaper. And I did that. And I was and I was just fascinated by the experience. And I decided then and there that, A, I wanted to do this for a living. And B, I wanted to do my studying at Ohio University. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing both. But I was not one of these, you know, there was a lot of there are a lot of people who, who go off to college, like feeling their way around, trying to figure out what they want to do with the right. rest of their lives. I wasn't one of those. <laughs> I had a pretty good, clear idea from the start.
0: So when did you decide on politics?
1: Well, that's interesting, too. I mean, I was always interested as a kid in politics and particularly history of, of politics. And um You know, I I used to uh, watch, like, the political conventions on TV when they used to do gavel-to-gavel coverage on television, and I, I was always fascinated by that stuff. But in college, I was working at The Post at Ohio University, which is the daily student newspaper, And we really hadn't done a great deal of stuff with state politics and stuff happening in Columbus in the state house. And there were some really big issues going on at the time uh, involving Ohio University because uh, Jim Rhodes, when he was governor in the 60s, had had really put the the whole university system in debt with his bonds, building, you know, brand spanking new campuses. Hmm which was very nice for the campuses, but then there wasn't the money to pay off the bonds. So it was a big story. We needed to cover it as a post at Ohio University. So I said, I'm gonna do it myself. Mm-hmm. Problem was, um, I didn't have a car. Nope. Nobody needed a car at, at Ohio University. You just walked around, walked all over the campus. The only person I knew that had a car was John Kieswetter, Uh, who was also at, at the post at the time, Uh, he was, he became the editor. I was like the um, uh, associate editor. I was in charge of the editorial page. And then I just took over the politics beat. Mm -hmm. I'd borrow his 64 Chevy and I'd go whaling up route 33 from Athens to Columbus I knew somebody at Ohio state that I could crash in their apartment up by the campus. Right. And I would stay there sometimes for two or three days going to the state house every day. And I would watch, I would follow and watch the state house reporters and what they did and how they did their jobs. And those people kind of became role models to me. And some of them I, I, still in contact with to this day. And I learned a whole lot from those people uh, on those trips. And by the time it was over, I mean, I had, um, I I was pretty much a full-fledged state house reporter and a state politics reporter. Uh, We covered the 74 gubernatorial election and uh, the uh, U.S. Senate election in 74, And uh, I mean, we were doing everything that any other daily newspaper in Ohio would do. Mm -hmm.
0: How did that experience feel as a student at OU at just coming out of that time out of college, being such a young kid and you're covering state politics, you're covering gubernatorial candidates. You're covering all these different Senate races. You know, that that's an experience for a young kid. I remember when I was in Minnesota, I just moved up to Minnesota. I was 23 years old. And my second week on the job, my sixth full day on the job, I had to interview Senator Al Franken. Yeah, And that's kind of where I felt like I was a journalist. That kind of gave me yeah. um, some relevance. <laughs> How did that experience for you as a young kid make you feel as a journalist?
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> Similar, very similar, really. I mean, you know, there were things, there were moments that I absolutely could not believe. When I was a little kid growing up in Dayton, uh, I remembered John Glenn and his uh, Mercury uh, three orbits around the Earth. And he was a hero. I mean, he was a hero to me as a child. And then later when I'm in college, suddenly I'm covering John Glenn Uh as a U.S. Senate candidate. And he was he was unbelievable in terms of the amount of respect he would treat you with, even though, you know, I was just some dopey college kid. But he treated me like I was, you know, from The New York Times or something. He would he would take you very seriously. And I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe I'm sitting across the table or sitting in a room with with John Glenn and having a conversation. This man was a hero. And that really struck me. And I had to get over, to a certain extent, I had to get over that hero worship. Right. Because, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to be uh, straight up and down about it. Now, you couldn't help but like somebody like John Glenn, he was just a likable person. He was a good person. And, you know, which made it a whole lot easier, but still with him, you had to ask tough questions sometimes. Right. But uh, that was a kind of experience that really struck me and said, no, you know, this is pretty cool. It's not a bad way to make a living.
0: Did being from Dayton, help with that interest in John Glenn because oh, yeah. Neil, Neil Armstrong is from the Dayton area and in that time, the space race was just, that was huge especially yeah. in the late 60s, early 70s and John Glenn was already this huge figure before even before running for the Senate Right. I mean, how much did, did I assume you had some sort of love for aviation and space travel at that point
1: Clayton, you didn't grow up in Dayton in the 1960s and not exactly. have an appreciation for aviation. I mean, number one, that's where the Wright brothers came from. Yep. Wilbur and every school kid in Dayton knew that story. You just knew it. It was taught in the schools and, and it became part of your, your life.
2: Right.
1: And, you know, we were also, uh, I mean, I lived about three, two or three miles from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base which was a major installation in those days, a very strategic um, installation in those days. And I remember as a child, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, knowing perfectly well that if things got out of hand and the Soviets attacked this country, we would be obliterated. Uh We knew that. I mean, I'm like this nine-year-old kid and I had this thing in my head, you know, I don't know whether or not we are going to be uh, hit with an atomic bomb, which would wipe out all of the, I'm sure, all of East Dayton. And I had in my head, I went to Cleveland Elementary School. My little sister was in in that school too. I had a plan. We only lived about two and a half blocks away from the school. And if the siren sounded, we were always told that you had 20 minutes before the bombs hit. Oh, wow. Now, that's pretty heavy for a nine-year-old. But I worked out a plan. I said, I am not, if I'm going to be um, turned into dust, it's not going to be in the basement of the school. It's going to be at my own home. Uh So I had a plan to go run, grab my sister, run down the street, go home and be at our, at our house when the bombs hit. I mean, that's, you know, you don't forget stuff like that. Right. That was quite an experience, but you're right about, I mean, Neil Armstrong came from Wapakoneto, which is up the road. Uh, but you know, he had many connections in Dayton. So did John Glenn, um, suddenly after his space flight, you know, roads were named after him, schools were named after him. I mean, you just, you you couldn't escape the presence of of a John Glenn. And um, then later the same was true with Neil Armstrong. Yeah, You know, that happened when I was in high school, Apollo 11. And much the same kind of thing happened that, you know, he became a, Heroic figure to people who grew up in Ohio, right? Grew up in and particularly in Dayton.
0: So it sounds like your interest, not just in politics, but you have a great sense of pride from being from the state of Ohio. Is that a correct assessment? Absolutely. Always have. Yeah. Did that play a role in you wanting to go into politics? Because it sounds like. And mm-hmm. I know from your work that you have a great experience in state politics. You have experience in all levels of politics, but you can re- I can really tell your passion in state politics and politics around the state as well.
1: Right. Well, it was a good time to become a political reporter in Ohio. Mm hmm. Because, you know, it was just in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, Ohio was starting to become this bellwether state in presidential elections. And there were a number of times in my career, um, especially at the Enquire, when I was at the Enquirer that I had opportunities to go work in Washington as a politics reporter. Well, I thought about it and I said, wait a minute. I said, if I go there... I'm just one of like 40,000 political reporters in Washington all scrambling for the same story. If I stay here in Ohio and in a presidential election year, these candidates have to come to me. Uh They have to come to my city and you know, the the campaign will will come to me. And that, that appealed to me. And I said, okay, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna stick around because you know the the people in a presidential campaign, the ones who have the journalists who have the most influence or the most um, clout are usually the ones who are within a state that is very important right. in terms of, of the election. And that was the case for many, many years in Ohio. That's why I ended up covering like 16 presidential nominating conventions and traveled with candidates all over the country. And particularly in Ohio when they were here. You know, many bus rides, many plane rides, many, you know, with, with uh, candidates for president and presidents. And that was an experience I don't think, I'm not sure I would have gotten if I had left Ohio uh, to have that kind of experience on the ground in, in the heat of a, a really contested presidential election.
0: I want yeah. to move on to the inquire. When, how did the opportunity of the inquire come about?
1: <laughs> well, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I'd always, I'd always been aware of inquire, obviously, you know, and I knew people that worked there, Um. But I went when I got out of Ohio University. I went to uh, small town newspapers first. I worked in Painesville, Ohio, um, for a little while. I worked down in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Then I had about five years at in Troy, Ohio, which is you know just north of Dayton, about 25 miles north of Dayton, um, in a great town, and I loved it there. And for me, that was good journalism training just because in a small town, when you're a a writer, when you're a reporter and you're putting your name on stories that everybody reads every day, the town is small enough that you can walk down the street and they know who you are Uh (laughs) and people would stop you. On the street and talks. Hey, you know, I love that story. Or I, you know, what, what, what were you thinking when you wrote that story? You know, and and you get this instant feedback from people, good and bad, which you didn't get at a, a big city newspaper. So to me, it was like a great experience because you, all you had to do was walk out the front door of the of the newspaper office, and boom public reaction hit you right in the face. Right. So, but then it came to a point where, you know, I said, okay, let's, it's, it's time to move on. And I knew people at the Enquirer and I did, I ended up being interviewed there. The thing that worked against me at first was that I did not come from a Gannett newspaper. Uh, you know, Enquirer obviously was owned by Gannett and they tended to hire people from the smaller Gannett papers. So I got passed over the first time but the, the uh, city editor who uh, a fellow by the name of Jim Delaney is still a very good friend of mine, he wanted to hire me badly and he wow. said, look he said just sit tight in Troy for a while and the next opening that happens, I will uh, I'll go to bat for you." And he did. He was as good as his word. About seven or eight months later, after I had been passed over the first time, uh, one of the reporters, Mike Palfur, decided to go from the local news desk to the business desk. And that created an opening. And so he calls me and boom, I'm down I-75 interviewing, you know, with the top editor, with the managing editor, with everybody. And... Things had changed enough in those months that they were willing to, to to take a chance on somebody who had not come from within their organization, hmm. which I didn't. Right. And next thing you know, in October of 1982, I was working for the Cincinnati Enquirer.
0: What year was that? What year did you get hired at the Cincinnati Enquirer? 1982. Um, I started in October. Okay. And you left the Inquirer in 2012, 2014? 2012. 2012. Yeah.
1: 2012. April 2012. I took an early retirement buyout. So you had
0: 30 years at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Right. What are some of the most memorable stories that you covered at the Inquirer? Oh, my. I know they're well, probably a ton in 30 years. Yeah, but. that's a lot. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's, that's a lot of uh, ground to cover, but... I mean, obviously, the presidential campaigns,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, the 16 conventions, you know, which all had their own personality and, and uh, you know, some were very, very fun to cover. Others were just miserable. I mean, it was just absolute utter misery covering these things. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. I got to travel all around the country Uh, and uh, see a whole lot of different cities and different places in in the United States. But there were other stories, too, that I did um, that made a big impression. One of the early stories I did was about a plane uh, crash that took place here in Cincinnati, um that was an Air Canada plane that had taken off from um, Dallas and there was a fire on board. It was going to Toronto hmm. and they had to make an emergency landing here and as soon as they hit the ground, the whole plane burst into flames. Oh, wow. And half of the people on board, there were 88 people on board and 44 of them died. Oh, And it was an unbelievable thing. I mean, these people were, you know, I mean, these were not people from Cincinnati. These are people who were heading to, from Dallas to Toronto for whatever purpose, business or pleasure. And half of them died right here. And it was a very intense story. And we worked on it, you know, around the clock for days the Toronto newspapers started sending people in um, and I got to know, you know, a lot of them. There was one kind of funny story that happened out of that uh, about a week after the the crash, the, uh, the pilot and the crew had survived. They were up in the front of the plane. It was mostly the people were in the back of the plane who were killed. Mm -hmm. And, But the crew had had survived and they were going to hold a press conference uh, in Canada to talk about what happened that day. So I just happened to be off that day and and I got a, a page, you know, in those days we all had pagers and I got a page to call the office, which I did. And they said, go home now, pack a bag. You're going to um, Toronto immediately, go. So I did, and I came down to the office, they gave me a plane to, they had gotten the plane ticket from a travel agency, um, they stuffed some money in my pocket so I wouldn't, you know, I'd have some walking around money and uh, put me on a plane that first went to Detroit, then I changed planes and went to Toronto. Now, I had not arranged any of this. So I get to Toronto and I and they had booked a hotel room for me, which was near the airport. And I knew that the press conference was not until the next day, not until the next morning. Mm-hmm. So I called uh, a reporter that I had met from the Toronto Star. Uh, just to see, you know, what he was doing, and I was actually thinking, of, you know, if Blue Jays were in town, I was going to go see a ball game or something. Mm-hmm. But I called him. I called Don, the the reporter from the Toronto Star. And I said, I said, Don, what time is this press conference tomorrow morning? He said, That's well, uh, nine o'clock. I said, well, where, where is this hotel? Where they're going to do this? He said, What? I said, Where's the hotel? I said, Well. It's in Montreal. Oh, no. <laughs> they had said the Enquirer had sent me <laughs> to the wrong city. So I, I called my editor back in, in Cincinnati. and I was, I was screaming at him. I said, how could you do this to me? You know, and he, and he was apologetic about it, but he thought the thing was in Toronto. Right. And he sent me there. But it was actually in Montreal, so we had to scramble – I got like a commuter flight to Montreal for the early in the next morning. Got up, oh my up my. real early, ran out to the airport, got on this commuter plane to go up to Montreal. We got to Montreal. It was at the supposed to be at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel downtown, right. Montreal. And I, I had one, like one little bag, one overnight bag. Picked that up, I went out, walked out to the transportation area, and I saw this great big white limousine. And I said, now I'm taking that limo. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna pay for it. And so I loaded into the into the limo, said Queen Elizabeth Hotel, chop chop, let's go. Yeah. And the guy took me down there. And I did, and I I covered the press conference, I wrote the story. And that was kind of my revenge was that they had to pay for this. It was pretty expensive, actually.
2: Uh,
1: They had to pay for this uh, limo. But it was a weird story because I had to write it. I had to turn around and go back to the airport. I wrote it at the airport. um, And I had to phone it in. In those days, I had to dictate And it was, you know, so I dictated about half of it. I got on a plane in Montreal. The plane in Montreal took me to Pittsburgh where I had a layover and I dictated the rest of it in the layover in Pittsburgh before getting on a plane to take me back to CVG. And so I had been in like six different airports 24 hours, uh, all because they couldn't get their act together and send me to the right city. Oh my gosh. Howard sees the world. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And and it was like a whirlwind tour, you know, just bouncing from one plane to the next, but I'll I'll never forget that. I mean, that was crazy, but you know, I, I did that. I've done, I did the uh, 1997 Ohio river floods, which was amazing. Unbelievable. The destruction that I saw up and down the river, myself and a photographer named Saeed Hindash. we were, uh, traveled for several days up and down the river, and it was very difficult because so many places were flooded out that you right. had to find ways to get around. We actually, you know, uh, got people. We paid money to people to to put us in boats and and get us from one place to the next. Wow. Um. It, so, it, so, oh, sorry. All go ahead. kinds of stories like that. Yeah, I, get, I can bore you with those for like several hours.
0: <laughs> uh, one story I do want to get from you. Obviously, today is September 13th. So we're doing this mm-hmm. a couple of days late. Uh, but Saturday or two days ago was the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. You were yeah. at the Enquirer in 2001. Take me through your September 11th, 2001. Where were you? What were you doing? How did, if at all, did you cover the story?
1: Well, that's a really good story. And if you go to WVXU.org, I wrote a column about it uh-huh. the other day. Um, because the reason I wrote a column about it was because it was so unusual. Uh, that was a primary election day in, Ohio, in Cincinnati. It was the first mayoral primary that was held under direct election of the mayor in Cincinnati was held on that day. So I kind of woke up a little later than usual because I knew I was gonna work late that night on the election. But as soon as I got up and put a pot of coffee on, I turned the TV on and suddenly I'm watching what everybody else in the country is watching, this horror of planes flying into into the World Trade Center buildings and I said, oh man. I mean, and, and without, and everybody at the Enquirer did this. Immediately got in the car, went to the office. And we worked and worked that morning and into the afternoon. The decision was made that we were going to put out an extra edition in mm-hmm. the afternoon that would be distributed free on the streets uh, just to update people. This is, you know, newspapers were different in those days. You know, there was no online edition. There was no, nothing, you know, if you were going to do it, you had to make make it, put it together, and print it. And we found out a whole lot of information about local connections, people that, uh, families here who, who lost loved ones that day. Um, and, you know, everything that we could find out that would relate the story to Cincinnati and to Ohio and Northern Kentucky as well. And we put out an extra edition. It was the first extra edition that, that the Enquirer had done since the day of Pearl Harbor, on December wow. 7th, 1941. And it was an amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was very hard work. And it was very hard to concentrate because we're human beings too and you get consumed by everything that was going on around you. But then I had to drop it all and go yeah. to the board of elections and cover this ridiculous election that they should have called off, but they didn't. And only 15 of percent of the voting population showed up that day. Right. And it was the first uh, mayoral primary. Uh, in, in our era of direct election of the mayor in Cincinnati. It was a tough night. Yeah, It was hard to concentrate.
0: Now, I remember I was eight years old when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened. And I vividly remember the afternoon edition. My dad picked us up from school mm-hmm. and we went to a gas station. I can't remember exactly what gas station, but he picked that, that special edition up. And I, I still can see it to this day. I actually have it I just moved up to Middletown. It's in one of these boxes. Like Is I've kept a- it, I've kept it all these years. You're um, ahead of me. I don't have a copy of them. Oh, wow. I, I can, I can give it to you <laughs> if you want. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Yeah. U.S. attacked and then a picture of the trade centers. Right. That image just sticks in my head. Obviously at then I, I kind of started to get an interest in journalism and knew that I wanted to be a journalist then. But you talked a little bit about how rare special afternoon editions were back then in, in newspapers got the newspaper once a day in the morning and I just remember how special in, in not the best way special that edition was. And yeah. I, when I say not special, I mean tragic, not as in like the reporting wasn't good. The reporting was fantastic, but that just really sticks out in my head as a journalist now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Clayton, I mean it was it was so hard to do. Yeah. So hard to focus that day. Like I said, we're all human beings. We, you know, yeah. we're all affected by this. And, um, but you just put your head down and, and, and plugged away and did your job.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you talked about that mayoral primary. That was the, and you mentioned it both just now and in your column, which by the way, I read the column, fantastic column. Um, I, I urge everyone to go to wvxu.org. And Curtis Fuller shared it. He is now a WLWT anchor and was a reporter and anchor before the election. And then he was running for mayor that year. And that was such a unique election because, as you said, that was the first election where we were directly electing the mayor as opposed to the top vote getter in the city council race being mayor. Can you talk a little bit about that race and just how unique that was?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, up until nine eleven, it was just kind of a typical political campaign, you know, a lot of back and forth, some uh, candidate forums, you know, where they would, you know, debate the issues. I mean, there weren't any real burning issues except the, you know, the uh, after effects of April of 2001. Right. Mm -hmm. When all the civil disturbances and the rioting occurred in Cincinnati. And we were still paying the price for that. Um, And that became the central issue in that campaign. Now, nobody knew what was going to happen. Charlie Lucan was considered the favorite just because he had been around so long. He was mayor at that time under the top vote-getter system. And Curtis was, although he was very well known in the city, wasn't known as a political figure. And so he was a rookie at this. But nonetheless, on that on that day, he was able to somehow get his voters out to the polls where the Charlie Lucan voters stayed home. And he won by a substantial margin but like I said, it was only 15% of the electorate who showed up. So they were the top two vote getters. There were two minor candidates who, you know, split up about seven or 8% of the vote. So the top two vote getters then faced each other in a fall. The fall, in the fall it was a much different story. You had about twice that number of, of voters showed up and Charlie Lucan was elected fairly easily, um, but, On that one day, it it was, you know, it it had turned Cincinnati politics upside down. Right. And nobody knew whether or not that was going to be the case in November or not.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, yeah, it was it was quite a, a strange little election that we had the first time around.
0: Were you surprised that they did not postpone the election on September 11th?
1: I was. Yeah, I was to a certain extent. I mean, they were, you know, the polls polling places were open, obviously, before, um, you know, the terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. They've been open for a couple hours. And ironically, the the same thing was going on in New York City. Uh, yep. I was just about. To, yep. Yeah. I mean, they were holding a, a mayoral primary in, in municipal elections that day. Well of course they couldn't continue. There was right. no way they could continue. So they suspended their election and they held it. They completed it like two weeks later. Um, there was a lot of talk around about, you know, do we keep the polls open? do we not keep the polls open? There was a decision made by the Board of elections at the time that we would go through with this. We would go ahead with this. And I think there was sort of this idea of, you know, we're not going to let the terrorists stop us, you know, from exercising our our democratic freedom. Right. There was that sort of feeling in the air, but nonetheless, it was very difficult. And most voters obviously said, no, I, I don't want any part of this today. People wanted to stay, stay home, be with their families, be with their friends, um, and more. And it's very difficult to hold an election when a, when a whole city is in mourning. Right. Um, but, but nonetheless, they did
2: it.
0: I'm going to throw a general, a big general question at you, (laughs) spanning your entire career. So you've been around politics for, um, a while. (laughs) And um, you think about politics back in the late 70s and in the early 80s, and you think about politics now in 2021. Mm -hmm. How has politics changed in that time? Has it always been this divided? Has there ever been a time in this country's history where we saw so much um, division and hatred toward the other side than we do today?
1: Not not in my lifetime right? I mean, not in, in my years. I mean, they were obviously always, uh, it's a tough business. And, you know, people weren't always nice to each other. Uh, but at the end of the day, they could they could put it aside and, and get along. That's not the case anymore. Right. The, you know, nobody's listening to anybody, you know, on the other side. And, you know, I always, I kind of hearken back to the, Like during the Reagan administration, when um, Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House, you know, the old old style Democratic politician from Boston was running the House, and you had Ronald Reagan uh, running the government. And they would fight all day long. They would argue about issues. They would argue about policy. They would hold competing news conferences but when the day was over more often than not tip o'neill would get in a limo on capitol hill and take it down to pennsylvania avenue to the white house and he would he and ronald reagan would sit that evening open up a bottle of whiskey and and just talk and they probably and they I'm sure solved a whole lot of problems that way, uh, just by you know human interaction. But you don't have that anymore. I mean, John Boehner tried it, and he got run out of his party. Uh, you know, for for bending over backwards to try to you know to talk to the other side and try to compromise. He was a guy who who believed in compromise on on certain issues. I mean believed in you know there's a a limit to that but you should at least be talking to the other side and you know john boehner's political career was wiped out by that right um so yeah it's it's a whole different thing Clayton I mean it's it's really really changed and and frankly it's less fun than it used to be yeah. because of that, because it's so mean spirited Mm -hmm. and ugly sometimes Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that you can't help. But, you know, I mean, we, we spent in the media four years, you know, being called the enemies of the people. Yeah. You know, well, you know, a lot of that you just let roll off your back, but it's tiresome. Uh It's tiresome when you're out there trying to do a job. And trying to cover an administration, a government, um, and, and do it the right way.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. When we started being called the enemy of the people, I just you know, I just kind of thought to myself, how did we get to this point? As okay. as a society, you know, the journalists were for the most part, most journalists are unbiased, just trying to cover the story. From both sides, but the people who are calling us the enemy of the people are the ones that only want to hear one side.
1: Right? Yeah, that's all they want to hear, and it's not. You know, I always I I go back and forth about the idea of objectivity uh, all the time in journalism. Uh, I look at objectivity as as almost an impossible goal. Because you're making decisions every day about, am I going to write this story? Am I going to quote this person? Am I going to do, you know, you're making decisions which are not objective. Right. They're subjective judgments. Now, I prefer to think of it not as objectivity as being a goal, but fairness. Right. Try to be fair to people. Try to be fair to everybody. Try to be fair to both sides or all three sides, or however many sides there are. But to to expect complete, pure objectivity is impossible. It's, yeah. it's not the nature of the beast. Every news organization, every news person makes those kind of decisions every day. And as I said, they're not objective. They're very subjective. Right.
0: You know, you talked a little bit about fairness and being unbiased. You have been a political reporter and a political analyst. Those are two completely different roles. How hard is it to be unbiased and fair as an analyst, as opposed to a reporter, which is just straight facts?
1: Well, surprisingly, it's not that... Big a difference. I mean, you know, you, fairness is fairness. I mean, you, you try to be fair about it. I, as, as a person who is called an analyst, as a columnist, um, I have a point of view and I will express that point of view in columns. But the only reason I do that is because I have been around so long and seen so many changes that I feel like I have the background and the knowledge and and the depth of experience to be able to do that with credibility. Right. If I didn't have the credibility, it would be just nonsense. So I worked very hard for that credibility over the years as a reporter covering politics uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. And, I think I, you know, if I'm successful at it at all, it's because I developed a reputation for being fair to people. Mm-hmm. And I hope to do that until I actually do quit doing this. Right. But it's it's not, as an analyst, as a columnist, uh, you you basically are, are expressing things that you might not have expressed before. But I I have a problem with, and this is kind of a complaint that I have with young some young journalists, not all young journalists, but they come out of college and they think they're going to be instant pundits. Well, you have to earn that. You have to earn that the hard way uh, by being that reporter who puts the nose to the grindstone and, and covers a beat uh, for a long period of time, sometimes before you get that privilege of being looked at as somebody, as a voice. Yeah. And I'm afraid that there are too many, you know, I, I, I talked to, and this has not been a problem with the Walnut Hills kids or the chatterbox kids, you know, cause they seem to get it and they get it. Uh but I've seen some people come into the profession from college thinking they're, they're landing in, a, in a, a position where they can do commentary all day. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you, you can't. You have to do the reporting, you have to do the legwork, leg you have to do the, the grunt work first and learn your subject inside out before you can even think about calling yourself a pundit, right, or an analyst, I get this. I mean, this senior political analyst is a is a title that somebody at WVXU came up with. I don't know, you know, I don't I don't think of myself in, in those terms. I don't go around introducing myself. Oh, I'm the uh, senior political analyst. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm just a, a reporter. I'm a guy, right. I'm a journalist, and. I've been around long enough where I can, I, I can have a point of view. Right.
0: Well, Howard, thank you. I have one more question for you. Sure. I can't, I can't not talk to you and ask about my alma mater. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I told you, I got my start at the Walnut Hills high school chatterbox. Yeah. You are a volunteer that i that's how actually how i met you i kind of gave a talk at the chatterbox about my journalism career and you were there helping out some students how did that uh, opportunity come about and talk a little bit about those kids at walnut hills cuz you said yeah. you know, in your last answer they get it so they talk did. about so just talk a little bit about that opportunity
1: well it's been a great opportunity uh, this is my eighth year of doing that at walnut hills um, it, it came about because the radio station, WVXU, uh, got a grant from the Dater Foundation for this Democracy in Me program, which we, we is much more than me just going to Walnut Hills High School. Uh-huh. But that's a part of it. And that's how I started getting hooked up uh, uh, with, with the journalism program at Walnut Hills. And it's been one of the best experiences of my career because I love going in there because the kids are so smart. I mean, they're really smart. Uh, You have to be just to get into that school. Right. And they're very thoughtful and they actually listen. I mean, they listen to you,
2: you know, and
1: they're great to work with one-on-one just because, you know, they're, they're eager to learn They want to learn. And now I'm starting to see, you know, I've been there long enough now. I'm starting to see them, you know, get out of high school and through college. Some of them go turn to journalism. Others don't. But they're all, I think, much better for having worked at that student newspaper. Because they learn to express themselves. They learn to ask questions. They learn to write uh, clearly. And they learn a whole lot of lessons that they can apply to to just about any profession that they go into. And I'm very proud when I see some of them, you know, coming out and going into the journalism profession. I've got one one of my former uh chatterbox people is now a staff member at the post at ohio university oh wow that makes me feel really good (laughs) yeah because that's that's a fraternity uh we call ourselves posties i don't care when you when you were on that staff a postie is a postie is a postie Hmm. and now i've got like one that i helped bring along so i'm kind of proud of that and um, it, it's, it's very satisfying. It's, it, I look forward to it every week. And I tell them at WVXU, I said, look, don't, do not bother me <laughs> when I'm doing this.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining me. Well, this thank has you. been Howard Wilkinson, Senior Political Analyst at 91.7 WVXU and WVXU.org. Again, thank you so much for your insightful answers and for just being an awesome sport about being on the podcast. And thank you for everything you've done for the journalism business here in Cincinnati. So I just want to say that before we sign off.
1: Well, thank you, Clayton. Uh, Anytime. uh, Just give me a call. All
2: right.
1: Thank you so
0: much, Howard. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Howard Wilkinson. When it comes to covering politics both at the state level and the local level, no one does it better than Howard, and I was just so blessed that he agreed to be on the podcast. I'm glad that he came loaded with stories to tell about his journalism career because he has a very storied career. Here in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Enquirer and as a senior political analyst now at 91.7 WVXU and WVXU.org. Now, on the blog, I talk about my conversation with Howard, as particularly that commentary that he did on 9-11, what was going on in Cincinnati's history on that day. Of course, that was the city's first mayoral primary where they were directly electing the mayor as opposed to the top vote-getter of the city council race becoming mayor. So it was a very crucial and critical day in Cincinnati's history. And then obviously it got turned upside down with what happened in New York and in Washington and in Pennsylvania. He talks about what his day was like. So I linked that post to my blog post. You can find that at claytoncastlepod.blogspot.com. I also talk about... The GOP congressional redistricting maps, which are a big issue in Columbus right now. I was unable to talk to Howard about that because that actually happened after our conversation, but he has since written a column about it. I have also linked that column to the blog post as well. Again, that is claytoncastlepod.blogspot.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to share, like, follow on our podcast, which can be found at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on SoundCloud. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week.